Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This is Talking With. How you guys doing? I'm here with the homie Onura. How are you? I'm very well, my brother. I'm doing really good. So we start these the same way, bro. What club do you support? Well, I think the best way to answer that question is to just quite simply say I'm a Chelsea fan, but I'm trying not to be. <laughs> good. good. I, I, I'm there with you. And what country or countries do you support or have loyalty to? Ooh, man, I have a lot. Okay, so my father is from Nigeria. And, you know, the Super Eagles has been my team since I was a kid, so I support them. My mother's from Rwanda and Uganda, but neither of those teams are any good. I, I think Uganda has been in the African Nations Cup a few times, never really done well. But then um, I also, I grew up in Togo, uh, which is West Africa. Mm-hmm. So I used to like that Adebayo team. And when they were coached by Stephen Keshi, the late, late great Nigerian uh, coach and captain, um, so I support Togo. Senegal is like my favorite team. Like they're, they're my favorite team in the world. Like I was wearing a Senegalese jersey. I just took it off because it's hot. Obviously, I'm, 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 I've had English nationality as well. I don't really support. I don't think I've ever supported England before. Um, so I would say I would say mostly uh, Senegal, Nigeria, and then uh, any of the other West African countries I tend to support. Right. So we've got a couple more foundational questions. So where were you born? I think you answered that one. And where did you grow up? So you've, you've grown up all over Africa, it seems. Everywhere, my brother. I grew up so born in Kenya. Um, and then I grew up. So sco- in terms of schooling, my schooling was in. Where do I start? I think my first school I ever went to was in uh, Burundi, which is right next to Rwanda. Um, and then I went to school in Benin, went to school in Nigeria, went to school in Switzerland, went to school in Togo, uh, and then uh, university in the UK. What, if any, was the extent to your playing career? So did you play in school? Did you play semi-pro? Did you get trials? Anything like that? Like, how far did you go? Or was it just playing in the street with kids? No. So, uh, okay. So up until about 16, I think at 16, I realized I would never become a professional, but like most kids, that was my dream. Mm -hmm. Uh, so when I was young, I was very active in football. So both in Switzerland 
So in Switzerland, I played uh, for my school, but I also, and I captained my school, actually. We, this is a middle school. This is like an American school. Amazing talent from all over the world. I went to an international school. So you had, I mean, I remember this, this kid from Brazil. He was amazing. I remember this, this white American guy, John Ferguson. I don't, I'm surprised he didn't go pro. He's amazing. So we had an amazing team. Then I went, when I went to Togo for secondary school, um, I played for my school and the senior team. Uh, but of course, the career progression wasn't amazing, but I played right back. I was number two. Um, at the time, my favorite footballer in the, in the world was uh, Celestine Babiaro, who was number three for <laughs> Chelsea. Yeah, oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah that, that, was, that, was, that was my guy. Um, and then after that, you know, probably about 15, 16, I realized, look, to, to make it, you know, it, it takes far too much. And I don't think I had enough foundational uh, understanding of the game. I wasn't coached or anything. We were, you know, when if I had stayed in Switzerland, maybe I could have taken it further. But because we moved, because we played, I played also for Servette Football Club when we were younger. So under 13s. So this is the club that Philip Senderos, if you remember Senderos, the Arsenal player from many years ago. So he was like a year or two ahead of us. So we played for a little bit, and but then I quickly left Switzerland. So I didn't, I didn't progress that much. So I think had I been coached differently, I think my understanding of the game would have been different, and I would have known what it took. But so yeah, so that's the extent of my my playing career. It's just just secondary school. You know, I'm one of these guys. I mean, if you know what I do mm-hmm. in my regular, in, you know, in everything that I do, both my day job, my career, everything. Like I, I, I kind of wing everything. I believe I could do anything. So so it was no different back then. I think being at that age, because I was like captain of of our team, and we used to play this tournament every year called the Tribune de Genève, which is a big tournament. All the schools across uh, Geneva, Switzerland, French-speaking part of uh, Switzerland. Um, and I was captain of, of of our team. When I look back, I think I muscled my way into being captain, but but but, but that's, 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 that's neither here nor there. But but I was you know I was a central midfielder, and it wasn't until I went to Togo. And I was playing around a bunch of African kids from all over Africa. So obviously I'm playing in Switzerland around all these European kids. I go to Togo and I'm around all these African kids. And I realized I was a right back and I excelled as a right back. I was, you know, and, you know, again, we had some amazingly talented footballers, but there's something different about playing with African kids who are physically, you know, 13, 14 year old with muscles, <laughs> muscles on his legs, on his toes, everything, you know? So, so there's, so, so we were physically, I understood what the game was like, but the difference between that and Switzerland is there was no, the coaching wasn't adequate because the progression in terms of being a professional just wasn't, wasn't really an option, you know? And um, it's funny because when we would go and play other schools, there would be much more, um, their, their IQ and their physicality would just outweigh me. I, I never forget. We would play, say, you know, because we played every single day as well. We played barefoot. We played with boots. When we played on a big pitch, it was like a sandy pitch. It wasn't. So physically, we were developing a lot of core strength and so on. But the skills, sorry, the skills coupled with the uh, understanding of the game, for me, took later to develop because I hadn't, you know, I had to, I had to adjust my physicality to living in Africa. And mm. by the time I understood it, I was ready to leave. So it was poor timing in terms of my parents, like choosing to move me away from here or there. I think, you know, the, I think that's ultimately what, what let me down, I think. But I think I could have, I really think, honestly, I mean, I was obsessed with the game, mm. obsessed with becoming a professional. I was obsessed. And I tried a little bit later on when I was in England, maybe about, maybe about 20, I went up for um, non-league trials for, for, for a team and 
because I hadn't been as seasoned, you know, I, I think the trial was just, it was a disaster. In fact, when I look back, I was just like, I should have never gone in, you know? And I think that was, that was really the final straw for me where I was like, no, nah, I'm, I'm done. I can't try and do this anymore. Cause I remember I was trying, I was trying to channel like my, Mark Bright and Ian Wright, you know, people became pro late <laughs> and it just didn't work for me. You know, it, just, it was, it was over. All right, so I'm gonna. I'll, there's there's a bunch of things you said. So first you said Senderos, and my mind immediately goes to I think the '05 Community Shield where Drogba just bullies him. Yeah. So yeah. that's 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 first out of my mind. <laughs> then we'll get into this later. The documentary side. Surely you've seen Hoop Dreams. Absolutely, one of my favorite documentaries. One of the one best of- documentaries. Like those stories of like kids trying to make it. Like yes, that's. Sir. Bro, and it's funny because speaking of that, that Arthur Agee and mm-hmm. uh, the other kid, I forget his name. Arthur Agee, it was like I, I wish I had that kind of charisma. I was more like the other guy, but I, I didn't. I think you know, I had the opportunities to go to the best places. Unlike him, I wasn't William reliable. Gates. William Gates. William I Gates. Had to look it up. It, it would have. Yeah, been I, I, unlike him, I wasn't. I wasn't reliable. Like I remember, we get to big games, and the occasion would always get to me, and I think that's ultimately what let me down. I think had I shun in those big games, my mentality would have been different because that's the one consistent thing. Even when I go back to Switzerland, I never forget getting injured in like the first game of the Tribune de Genève, that, that tournament when I was captain. First game, I got injured, but I got injured from doing stupidness. Same thing when I moved to Togo. The big games, everybody they used to call me, um, they called me Nesta. That's what, that was my nickname across the school. I know when the older kids, you know, African, African kids, you know, when they, when, they, when they give you a name like that, they're like, you're a rock. Mm-hmm. Whenever I come to the big games, for some reason, my brain capacity, my um, ability to soak in the pressure and deal with it would, would suffer. And this is something which, you know, mentally, as I've gotten older, I'm, I'm pushing 40 now, my brother. Crazy. <laughs> but but like I, I, as I've gotten older, like it's one thing I've had to really overcome in big occasions. Don't freeze. Don't choke on the occasion. Stay composed and get through it. And that's one thing which I've had to overcome because those singular moments, not just that, even like, like athletics, I was a fast kid. I wasn't the fastest, but I was pretty fast. But some reason, somewhere between get set and go, I just wouldn't know what to do. <laughs> All right. So I'm someone who's moved around a bunch, maybe not with not the amount of distance, I would say. Right. But I, I calculated this one time if in American schools and Canadian schools, because I was born in Halifax, Nova Scotia, I calculated I went to 12 or 13 different schools for 12 or 13 different grades. So I was constantly moved around just, you know, the immigrant story of trying to find your feet and parents who are in university, getting jobs and moving countries, states, cities, all of that. At least I had the benefit of going from, you know, English speaking world to English speaking world. Canada and America have particular similarities. You're going from English speaking to French speaking to Switzerland to England. How did you cope with the amount of turbulence seemingly that your parents not put you through, but just had to do in order to make it presumably? Well, I think what helped me for the most part, a lot of the schools that I went to, I either had a sibling who had been there or was there at the time. So I'll give you an example. I was in primary school, sorry, nursery school. You know, remember, you know, Africans, we do like our nursery is like a long experience. It's like you're learning educational stuff in like nursery. So I did, I did, I went to like two nursery schools. So the first one I went to was in Benin. Uh, which is West Africa next to Nigeria. And then I went to another one in Nigeria. For the school I went to for primary school, my older brother and sister were already there. So in, in that sense, it was okay, you know, because I was like, this is just what we had to do. We had similar teachers. And then as soon as I go to Switzerland around the age of nine, 
I'm all of a sudden in a completely different system, American system. Everyone's got American accents. I end up having this American accent for like three, four years. Um, and then I, I, but I was the, but I was the only one there. You know, I didn't have any siblings. I, my, my, my brother, who's like six, six, five, six years younger than me. He was in first grade. I was in, I went in in fifth grade or sixth grade or something like that. Um, so, so in that sense, I was having to um, figure out who I was. I never forget, even just regarding race, you know, because all of a sudden, you know, you're a kid in Africa, you're watching things like a Cosby show, whatever, well, whatever the shows were, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, and now you're put in a school where you're like one of five or six black kids in a grade of like, I don't know, 300 people. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden you're like, man, this, being black isn't cool. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's not nice. It's not nice to be black. You look at your skin against the snow. It's like ashy. And you look at the white kids and they're all charismatic. They feel confident. And of course, hip hop starting at this point. I remember Wu-Tang. This is Wu-Tang time. So Wu-Tang mm. is like the prominent <laughs> rap group. And all the white kids like Wu-Tang. All the white kids like Dr. Dre. Do you remember the album era? Is this like Wu-Tang I, forever? Wu-Tang forever. I, yeah, yeah, Wu, okay. I was a Wu-Wear guy. Like I bought all the Wu-Wear <laughs> All the <laughs> like yeah. clothing, so 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 all of this is happening, and it's it, it's it, it, you know I'm almost starting to paint my identity around hip hop rather than as an African kid. I know I'm digressing from the question. No 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 no. Um, like the, the once once we get past playing career, there are no rules, bro. So we can talk about whatever. <laughs> right. So I'm I'm forming my identity in this hip hop thing, which isn't really me in that sense, except the fact, other than the fact that I'm black, it's it's not really me. I'm taking on this persona of, you know, some type of African-American guy in a way, you know, and I never forget my dad always checking me like, look, you think you're American, you're African, you know, and then I get to an age where it's like we had to leave and then I was supposed to go to England to like a private, you know, these, uh, what they call a public school, which is basically Mm -hmm. a private school. And then something happened at the last minute. They were like, do you want to go to this school in Togo? It's an international school. But my older brother and sister had already been there. So I was like, yeah, cool, let's go. I go there within the first five or six days. I was like, you ever see the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air episode, the first couple of days where he's like, um, I've been there for two days. I've been yelled out of school. I've been whatever. I've been insulted, whatever. And then he's having this argument with Carlton. That was me in that first week. I was so rude to everybody. I slapped the kid. I was disrespectful to my elders. And, you know, Africa will educate you. Like it will, it will teach you what it is to teach you. Within a couple of months, I was humbled. Let's just put it that way. The, kid, the kids there found a way to humble me. I learned respect. And within a couple of years, so many things had happened to me. Quite embarrassing things when I look back, actually, that fo- that molded me and kept me humble. So then when I from there, when I moved to the UK, my attitude was different. Like I had mm-hmm. a different mentality because I'd been around not just wealthy Africans, but I'd also been around poor Africans. So I really saw that, look, the opportunities I've been given are pretty good. Don't mess them up. You know what I mean? Mm. Um, by the time I moved to England, I'd had enough balance of experience to make me say that this is this is who I am. This is how I need to be in order to get things done in this world. And so uh, an attitude of humility is mm. what I need. In a way, when I look back, I'm very grateful for the way my life worked out. But there were moments where I was just like, damn, why didn't I just have, you know, you always <laughs> like, like, I'm pretty sure you had the same thing. You're always like, I just wish I went to one school. I just wish I was just, I just wish I grew up with everybody and thought the same as everybody else. <laughs> but in the end, you in the end, you look back, you're like, you know what? I'm glad I think, I, I'm glad I went through those experiences because I could think how I think and mm. I look at life differently, you know? So you get to England. Are you already a Chelsea fan by this point? Babiaro came 1996. Matter of fact, I got I got a woolly hat from when I was about 10 years old. A woolly, uh, we call it woolly hat. 
skull cap, I guess you guys call it. So I've still got my Chelsea woolly hat from uh, 1996. So that's how far back I go. Uh, we have a mutual friend. Mutual friend is actually, he's actually the one who got me into Chelsea back then. You know, and, I, and, I, and let me say this as well. Like back then, right, for me, because World Cup 1994 is really my first proper experience Mm. watching football like we play football we didn't really care like we, it's not like you know back in Nigeria and you know Premier League we weren't really watching like that like, at least my family was but the World Cup and international stuff African mm. Nations Cup never forget Nigeria winning the 1994 African Cup of Nations and then going to the World Cup a few months later playing against Maradona uh, losing to Argentina topping our group uh, <laughs> nearly beating be Italy and potentially going to the quarters and eventually the semi-finals you know, like that was like the first experience. So for me, football was always about international. It was always about your country. And mm. it wasn't really until I went to Switzerland where, you know, it was all about clubs. And when I was in, when we were in Switzerland, because Geneva is right next to France, like literally we were, our school's like 20 minutes from the border of France. So we were watching constant French Ligue 1. That's interesting too. So they called it a championnat. Um, so we, so even even my understanding of football was like French football, which you call it a farmers league now. God knows what, what God knows what it was back then. It was because like, so there's nothing really intriguing about it. And so once 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 you started watching the Premier League, then it felt like okay. Aside from the fact that it's sort of the English language is being spoken, I always looked to identify with which teams had the black players. And fast forward to <laughs> fast forward from '96 to 2001, 2002. Chelsea was always that team, like even before Arsenal, for me, that was very black. I remember Chelsea had a back four around 2001, 2002 season. They had Mario Melchior, William Gallas, Desai, and Bobby Arrow. The back four <laughs> were black dudes. And then up front, you had Jimmy Floyd Hasselbeck. That is and 2001. Like, that, that, 2001. That, that is when I jump on board, by the way. So this, so this is, <laughs> so looking at that in comparison to everybody else, and then, um, Chelsea being this team, which isn't quite, they're not quite the top dogs, but they're always like challenging the top dogs. The Man United Chelsea uh, fixtures twice a season was always like a big game, even though Chelsea wasn't at that level. Chelsea versus Arsenal was always a big game. Chelsea versus Liverpool was always a big game, but we were never like the top, top team. So, but, so, so I kind of like that sort of outside. Don't forget, they had Gullit as manager for a bit mm -hmm. too. So there was always this thing about them that I could identify with that I couldn't identify with in other teams. And now, of course, okay. is just like my guy. Yeah. So when, when I talk to people, especially African or black people in London, yeah. and I tell them I support Chelsea, there's like the second Chelsea that's like, yeah. Chelsea? That's Why? Oh, how, how would I word this? I didn't know any better because I'm this side. So I don't know what's going on in the terraces and like the Chelsea football culture, et cetera. Did you know about the reputation of Chelsea fans at large, or at least the local Chelsea fans at this time? Or were you no. just picking them purely off what you saw on TV? No, it was pure, purely what I saw on TV. In fact, mm -hmm. I, didn't, I didn't really notice that until years later. I must have been in my 20s uh, when, I, when, I, when I found out like, the history behind the club. But I, but I suppose this is, this is the thing that... This is, this, is, this is what I noticed, by the way. Around 2003, Roman Abramovich buys Chelsea. They go and buy all the Damien Duffs and the Joe Coles and Glenn Johnsons and all these people. And I remember everybody was so obsessed with Roman Abramovich, this young billionaire, 36-year-old billionaire. And I remember a whole bunch of people in Africa, especially Nigeria, jumped on the Chelsea bandwagon. All of a sudden became Chelsea fans. But prior to that, 
uh, go back a couple years, Nwankwo Kanu went to Arsenal. And as soon as he went to Arsenal and they saw that Henri and Vieira, these World Cup winners, they were black dudes. That's when people switched over to Arsenal fans. People became Arsenal fans. And a couple of years later, when Abramovich bought the team, people became Chelsea fans. No, not the same people, but... But just people you, at large. Gotcha. Yeah, because you, you got to understand, especially in a place like Nigeria, uh, people weren't watching regular Premier League football until around 99, 2000. Like, it wasn't a thing. It wasn't really a thing to watch Premier League football. It, it certainly become, it didn't become as prominent as it is now. Uh, but Arsenal was the team that introduced a lot of people because Kanu goes mm. to Arsenal. Then they have Henri, they have Vieira, they have all these French World Cup winners, Euro win- And then when they won the Euros, it was amplified. A few years later, all of a sudden, there's a proliferation of um, uh, super sports, which is the big uh, South African TV channel that shows all the sports. When it started going international uh, across the continent, then people started seeing other teams. And now the Chelsea matches, as soon as Abramovich buys the team, we get we finish, I think, second that season and we're in a Champions League spot. It's the second time in a row we were in a Champions League spot. So now, all of a sudden, Chelsea's at the top level. So everybody's watching Chelsea, so people jump on the Chelsea bandwagon. Mm. So I think I actually think more people are Chelsea fans than are surprised about being Chelsea fans. Like So that reaction to me is, certainly Arsenal is significantly more. Kanu goes there, he doesn't really do much for a couple of seasons. He does something for like a season or two. And then really Henri and the rest of them take over and really create this dynasty of black excellence, if you will, at Arsenal. So a lot of people have stayed Arsenal fans because of that. But ultimately, the Chelsea fans, maybe they've maybe they're 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 less so they're not as loud anymore because Chelsea really doesn't have any sort of tradition. So so at the top, <laughs> you said that you have Chelsea loyalties, let's put it this way, but you're trying to remove them or step back or something along those lines. Yeah. What what yeah. what has gone on in the intervening period from 96 to 2023 that you're like, I don't know if this is for me anymore. You can never stop being a I think I've been to a ch- I think I've been to a game at least every every season for like the last maybe 10 years or something or 11, except this year, like no interest this year. But you know what it is? It's, it's, it's more so that back to that thing of like the culture, the, there's, there's no real culture around Chelsea. A lot of people who are in love with Chelsea fell in love with, I mean, unless you go back, like I go back or your family is lifelong Chelsea fans. You're really in love with that period between 2004 and say 2011, or t- mm-hmm. I'd say 2004 and 2010, that Mourinho, the team Mourinho built and the legacy that they created, right? Even going up, I would, I would, I would even say around 2010, it's the, after 2010, it started dying a little bit. Once that generation left, with the exception of Hazard, you know, it's never really felt like a team that was going to dominate. Abramovich as a personality, someone who's able to buy and, and, and it, you know, Chelsea's always going to be in the mix. Chelsea's always in the mix, by the way. We're all even. This is a this is a bad season, but they've outbought everybody even this season. So Chelsea's always in the mix, trying to do better. You know, it's 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 now become a team where I'm just like, okay, Potter's the coach. I'm not watching a game. I just want to know what we did. I just want to know how how well we did. <laughs> so now it's 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 like I'm less I'm less involved emotionally because like mm-hmm. I, you know you know over the last couple of years I find myself I'm watching a game. I think it was Conte's last year. 
and then Saris last year. We're playing Bournemouth 2-0. They're beating us 3-0, 4-0. I'm just like, I just changed the channel. Because the emotion of it, I just, you know, you know, you know, you it's hard to feel, take. It's hard to take. You know, like, like when I see a United fan going through what they're going through, at least you can point to an exact reason for it happening. Fergie left. You know, there's a vacuum in terms of needing to be filled. It was never quite filled by anyone, and they were never given the opportunity to do it. So you can always understand a, a United fan sticking with the team. With Chelsea, it was always that team where we were never supposed to be great achievers. We managed to achieve a lot, but we never created any sort of solid structure that kept our fans saying, you know what, season in, season out, I'm with you. Just take five seasons. Has there been, been any one season where going through the, the whole season, you're just like, you know what, I have faith, I have faith. There's always some reason. A couple of years ago, you and I were on a podcast talking about Lampard needs to go. He's fucking up. Excuse my friend. He's messing <laughs> up. Fine. You know, we, we were frustrated. There's always, every other season, there's something to be frustrated about. Even a year ago, we were all complaining about uh, Tommy Tuchel. Go back even six months ago, we were complaining about this guy, you know? And then he left. And now we're like, oh, and we were, really, we didn't really want him to leave deep down. But but he left. And now, now look at the situation we're in. So now, Chelsea's one of those teams you can hmm. write off very quickly because it's just like, the season's gone. Like, we're not going to do anything. Let's wait for next year. But see, Honora, you're, <laughs> you're, you're still using we and us. And stuff. I know. See, I've detached know. to the point where Chelsea has become yeah. like a, a sociological, anthropological project yeah. where I'm looking how people basically interact with their fanhoods based on Chelsea, like loosely based <laughs> on Chelsea. Like I'm, I've, 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 I've stepped back. It's hard for me to square being... Pan African, pro, all all of these different yeah. types of things. Good point. Yeah. With I know the culture of Chelsea Football Club now because yeah. because the world has shrunk to where I I see the people who root for the club and I know what what like that P- Paris train incident did something to me. That was 2015, I think. It flipped a switch. Yeah. I was like, yeah. nah, I can't keep doing this. But since then, I've slowly retreated my position. And as you say, it's kind of like the Godfather line where, you know, they pull you back in kind of thing. Yeah. But I feel like I'm at a point where it's just like, it's them. It's not me. It's not us. It's them. And whatever they do, it is what it is. Yeah. 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 I mean, look, I I agree with you. I think, I think, first of all, trying to, trying to uh, rationalize being a supporter of any team in in Europe as a Pan-African, just (laughs) the two of them, just, it's an oxymoron. It doesn't work. It is. It is. it is my ultimate contradiction if we're talking about like that is my major contradiction. It's football, it's sports in general, actually. And and it's funny because you know even um, I said about that woolly hat that I have. Mm. I never, I've never ever bought Chelsea gear for that same reason. Like I don't wear a jersey. Like I, I remember going to FA Cup final and I, I just wore a blue shirt. I just wore a blue shirt that I had. I don't really wear the, the clothing, but mm. I but I understand it. I understand it. I think ultimately as a Pan African. You know, but but I have to also look in the mirror and recognize that I'm a con- contradiction in myself. I live in England. I'm a Pan-African, mm. but I live in England. I don't have to. I can go back and live in Africa. I can live in the Caribbean, but I live in England. So there's a certain level of uh, hypocrisy that's there. But I just accept them. I'm like, okay, cool, that's my team. Cool, it's a team I like. It's a team I like, and I like it because of the individuals that were part of it. Mm. And that's also why it's easier for me to, be, to divorce mm. myself sometimes from, like, this current squad, for instance. I can easily divorce myself from it mentally because I'm like, I don't connect with many of the players, you know, certainly not the prominent players. You know, I love, I remember Lukaku coming last season. I felt something. I went to the Zenit, the first uh, Champions League match. And I remember, I remember just going to the game and thinking to myself, man, 
it feels like we've got that quintessential African player again. That's like, you know, he, he means something to the team. And then the way they dealt with him a couple months later, just it's part and parcel of the same culture, by the way, it's, mm. it's the same culture. Like it, it, he may have said, made a statement, but for God's sake, you're going to crucify a man for a statement that was with respect to Lukaku. It was pretty stupid, but po- the point is, <laughs> yeah. the point, the point is it's the same attitude towards these sorts of players. He was never going to get the benefit of the doubt or just like, Oh no, some, he was never, some, he some was, pass. it was always going to be trouble. Yeah, and you see it. You see it not just in, not just with Chelsea. You see it across the Premier League. Kazuma goes and plays around with his cat, and all of a sudden is is arrested and is you know. I remember listening to the radio and people saying, "I'm, I'm a West Ham fan. If he keeps playing for the team, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna be a supporter." That's a lie, obviously. But but there there are people that are willing to make statements like that for the same reason. It's mm. the same reason as John Terry turning to Anton Ferdinand and saying whatever he says. It's the same attitude. And I think we need to be cognizant of the fact that we live in a society which ultimately has never liked us. They've gone to a point where they've tolerated us. They've even gone to a point where they've convinced themselves that they can't appear to not like us, mm-hmm. even though behind closed doors they will. So I think once you recognize that, at least for me, I recognize that and I'm like, okay, you know what? I take it with a pinch of salt, but I'm not married to this team. You know, it's, and I said this to you when we were on the podcast a couple of years ago, I was like, it's a slip of tongue. I try not to use we, but it sometimes it slips out. <laughs> you know, it slips out. But 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 ultimately, I I'm not married to the idea of Chelsea. It's just the team that I look at and say it's mine. It's the team I support. You know, but I'm not by any means. You know, I mean, I I I'm not gonna go saying blue is the color. Football <laughs> is. The, I'm not gonna sing that uh, match day. You know what I mean? <laughs> so I see. I think my issue is. When you're a kid, you look up to the players on the team and they're almost not human. They're like yeah. superheroes. I was born in 1990. So right. Drogba is born, I think, 78. They're, they're like, they're grown men. I'm a child. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at them like, oh, man, Drogba can leap buildings in single bounds and he can, you know, he has the ice <laughs> breath and the lace. Like, he's Superman. <laughs> Frank Lampard, yeah. John Terry, those are like, those are they're the Avengers. They're the Justice League, whatever superhero hero things people are into these days. But then, like, yeah. once the players become your age or younger, the level of attachment, at least my brain has yeah, gone through, it's just like, Good point. these are my peers, even people that are younger than my little brother. Mm-hmm. I, I can't look up to you as some idol. I'm not putting mm-hmm. a person who's born in 2003 on the back of my, like, come on, bro. Like, I'm a, I'm a grown man. That's yeah, a child. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I like, completely as, agreed. Completely agreed. But, but I will say this, though. Mbappe? <laughs> Mbappe is making me... Mbappe is making me become some type of kid, man. I'm telling you. Okay. Mbappe, what he's doing on the biggest stage. I'm not talking about his week in, week out for PSG. I'm talking about on the World, that World Cup. This yeah. World Cup, that World Cup final is like one of those memories in my mind. You know, I, I have a few World Cup memories that kind of stay in my mind. I have just even football memories. Drogba coming back uh, the year we won. See, we, we again. Uh, the, the year Chelsea won the Champions League. I think it was against, was it Napoli? I was at the game. Drogba scoring that header and it going from you, taking it you, to. You were at the second leg. I was at the second leg, yeah. Wow. Second leg in 2012. What a game to pick, bro. Yeah, it was a couple of weeks before my wedding as well. Like I got married that year. You, you remember moments like that, but. What I watched in my in my living room with Mbappe in the World Cup final, not just in the World Cup final, just the moments he had in the World Cup. And then just a week ago, two weeks ago, whenever it was, you know, coming on when he came on, even though the goal was dis- disallowed, just coming on and doing what he did. The, the boy is just making me feel those feelings because, again, 
there is a connection that he and I have in that he's a Cameroonian. Forget what they say. I know he mm. plays for France. And that's another thing. You asked me earlier, I was going to say this, but then I just, I just stopped myself. The other team I tend to support is France. See, again, again, France is a contradiction for me. I do like seeing them win. I just don't like seeing what they represent. Absolutely. 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 That's 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 exactly it. That's exactly it. But I have a theory, though, Mm -hmm. just just side note, just as to why teams like France do well and teams like England don't. French people tend to identify with their African nationality a lot sooner than people in England would. You look at them in their changing room, they express themselves. They express themselves in their maybe not necessarily in their language, but the way they speak like in their, in their, because, you know, France is very segregated. Uh, the banlieues, the suburbs of, of, of Paris is where a lot mm. of these players grow up. So they grow up around their culture and around, you know, you go to these banlieues, people are dressing in their clothing, African clothing, they're, you know, celebrating their African culture and so on. So when they come to the French national team, even they recognize that they only want me because I can play football. Now, some of them become Uncle Tom's and say st- st- stupid stuff like there's no racism <laughs> in France, like Pogba, you know, after they won the World Cup, stupid oh. stuff like that. But for the most part, they recognize the identity that they have is ultimately what's got them there. Whereas mm. in England, they don't. They seem to think that there's this one English attitude and culture and we have to subscribe and uphold the values of English culture in order to be English. You know, mm. so they tend to hold themselves back. You can always see Sterling trying to rebel against it and somehow always being, ch- you know, you remember the Euro final or the yeah. run up to the Euro final when Sterling was the only one scoring. And then he came out with some stupid, idiotic Uncle Tom statements like, you know, we've been waiting for this for 50, for 60 years, whatever, whatever it was since the, you know, he's like, we like, come on, man. Like, that's, that's, <laughs> you know, you know, you know, you know, stuff like that, yeah. you know, and, and it's funny because I'm now seeing it, this younger generation give less shits excuse me about like uh about about the english thing and they're just doing their thing you can see mm-hmm. in schools like i work in schools in, in in england too like you could see the children especially the influence of the black children the african children becoming the dominant culture now you know so you could see the expressions a little bit different so who knows you know um but like but but i agree with you france is a, it's a major contradiction the mm. tw- 2016 euro final for me, was was a moment where I realized that this like Africans are taking over football. You had the Euro final, which was essentially an African Nations Cup final, and I found that I found that interesting. The starting line, you just go back to that game. The starting lineup had maybe three or four white people, and everybody else that was playing, I don't think they were they were all from either Angola, Mozambique, Guinea Bissau. Mm. Mali, Guinea, whatever. They all had origin in, in, with the exception of Griezmann, Lloris, and I think Giroud, I think. That in itself gave me something to identify with and I could sit there and watch the game. So that's the extent of which I support France or even Portugal because mm. of that. You know, that's the extent of it. It's not that I would, you know, go and sing Vive la France. You know, it's not that. It's just more <laughs> I identify with the players. I have something in common with them. I like it when they don't sing the anthem and like the yeah. the, the pens of the world. It's just like, oh, they're not French. They're not, you know, that, yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. 
Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What did you study in university? Okay, so undergraduate level, I did international relations and French. So it's basically glorified politics and Mm -hmm. Cold War history, essentially. And Cold French. War history. That's essentially what you do in international relations. Like it's just Cold okay. War. Yeah. Um, and then um, I did a master's degree in film. Was the plan always to mix international relations and French with filmmaking or was filmmaking something you discovered later on? So, so, so actually, you know, much later on. So uh, throughout my life, I'd always been involved in storytelling to an extent. I did drama for GCSE, which is, uh, you, you know, high school, the end of, high school exams. Um, I did really well in it. I got an A and acting was always something I wanted to do. So I pursued an acting career before anything else, but I always had the, the idea of writing stuff. Uh, so I wrote some scripts and stuff like that. And, you know, after a while, after, actually after finishing my degree, well, after, after my degree period, I moved to London and pursued a career in acting. And within a few years, you realize I'm not going to get the roles I want. You know, they're just not, they're not, they're, I'm not even, they're not even looking at me. And this is 15 years ago plus. So the industry is very different. There's no Netflix. It's still very much the old school way, you know. Thug too. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, you know, you, you know, it's the only roles oh, available. Yeah. And this is the time when they started making these hood films, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and whatever these hood films, you know. Uh, and so for me, I was just, I was very much, in love with my African identity. And I remember the few films that would come out last year in Scotland, Blood Diamond. And I was like, okay, I could do this. I could do, I could do this. I could do this the right way. I could do this properly. Mm-hmm. So I'd write my own stories and so on. And I started out, I put a play on, I wrote a play, got somebody to direct. I started it, did a play, put, put a play on uh, in London in uh, just off the West End. So the equivalent of off Broadway. Mm-hmm. Um, and it did really well. Then we did it. Then I put some more money up and, put it on for a longer period, got really great reviews. But ultimately I realized films stretch more than theater. In other words, more people can see a film. So that's, that was essentially my film school. I didn't go to film school till after. Right. So I went and made, the, I mean, I went and made a couple of shorts, one, one, a couple of some awards, like some uh, award I got to meet like Queen Elizabeth. Uh, yeah. You know, <laughs> yeah, I know, I, I know, I know, say no more. Uh, and then um, I made a feature film with no money. Mm. Got me and my me and my friends. We made a feature film called Woolwich Boys um, about like uh, 419 fraudsters in London. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. Yahoo, Yahoo, okay. Yahoo, Yahoo, exactly. So, um, and, I, and, and, you know, and, and we made the film so long ago. So like mm-hmm. WizKid's first album was like the whole soundtrack. So we can never, like, I can't even show the film today. Like, oh. Like we use like music that just is it like WizKid is so big now. There's no way we can use that music. So anyway, we you know it was it was an experiment, and the film did well. We got like distribution on TV mm-hmm. in the UK. We 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 you know again some awards here and there, but the the bug had hit me. I realized filmmaking is what I ultimately need to do, and I I moved away from acting. From Willish Boys, I did. I directed a couple of people's films or like shorts. Mm-hmm. I produced a few films, a few that are on like Prime and Apple and stuff like that, Netflix, a couple of things that I did. You know, I, I ended up just working on the craft and learning to be a filmmaker. And I made my second feature film. It was a, set in 1973. The synopsis is a female assassin tries to murder the 
Portuguese prime minister while he visits London. You know, and it's kind of based on the the background of the Portuguese colonialism, the end of colonialism in uh, Portuguese speaking Africa. Mm-hmm. So that's the backdrop to the story. So I was really trying to tell that story, but didn't have the resources to do it as big as I wanted. So I was like, okay, let me focus on a London set story. So that's kind of like, you ever seen movies like The Day of the Jackal? If you watch it, it's pretty much a ripoff, at least <laughs> mo- mo- most, you know, in parts of The Day of the that's Jackal. That's one of my dad's favorite. Like my dad always talks about it's a classic. It's, right? it's a classic. It's a classic. And the book is even better. So I, I, made, the, I made that film. That did pretty well. So I got to travel What's the name a lot it? more. What's the name? It's called Mona, M-O-N-A. Mona. Okay. Don't worry, I'll get, I'll get a link to you somehow. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, but, but we, we, we had problems with distribution. I think the subject matter was really, really, because we were like saying some stuff. The opening uh, 10 minutes was like a voiceover just talking about, so I quoted like Franz Fanon and Amilcar Cabral who were like, Amilcar Cabral is like this this revolutionary leader from uh, uh, West Africa, Guinea-Bissau, exactly. So I was quoting his stuff, talking about how Portugal is, you know, a backward country and so on. You know, it, it was very difficult. I remember we went to, we went to, I got an award in Egypt, the grand prize at this film festival. And this Portuguese woman who's like, uh, she's actually set in, she's actually lives in London. She's a, she organizes a lot of film festivals and fi- finds films for film festivals in London. I saw her and I was like, Hey, you know, I know we've met before and she was just like, you know, why why'd you make this film? You should make films about, you know, where you, what you know, this subject matter you shouldn't be talking about. So I remember winning this award and like giving her a big salute. But that was a salute that meant you can't do shit in London with this film. So I came back to the UK. No one wanted to pick it up. No distribution. In the end, we had to, I took, took a loan, four wall, like hire a bunch of cinemas and put the movie out myself. You know, lost all my money. And that, that was enough for me to be like, I can't do this anymore. Like in terms of filmmaking, I haven't really directed a film, a feature film since. This is now eight years ago. Because even at that point, I was getting frustrated with the, with the process of making a film independently. It's just so hard. And the UK has no industry in that sense. We basically facilitate the US film industry. That's essentially what the UK is. So there's no, in, there's no film industry here. It's, you know, you've got the five or six studios here, which are really just where Marvel makes all its movies. Warner Brothers makes all its movies. It's essentially just a studio for the US mm-hmm. because of the tax relief and so on. No funding, no nothing. So, so I, I just got fed up with it. And, but at that point, I was having children and I was like, you know what? I'm, I want to explore more documentaries. I was, I was also watching a lot of TV and these travel documentaries, these history documentaries. Just when it came to Africa, they were just, they were just missing out. And I remember with all my experience living around Africa, I felt, you know, there's so much about this continent that we don't know about. So let me go and document it. So I went, started shooting these documentaries, shot my first one in Benin and Togo, which coincidentally is where, if you see The Woman King, it's set in modern day Benin. So the, the Dahomey Kingdom. Mm-hmm. So I did a documentary about that place, if, you know, seven years ago, uh, did one on voodoo, you know, and again, had the same problem because people were like, what? There's no precedent for this sort of thing. What, like, who makes a documentary like this? You're in it. Like, who makes, who does, like, what, what is wrong with you? So, again, no, couldn't find any distributors. Did, like, the film festival route. Even that was difficult because, like, there's no such, there's no, like, like, where do you put it? What is this a, a series? Is a film? Like, where do you put it? Uh, put it out myself. Put it, put it out on YouTube. Got viral around the pandemic, which was good. But I, I was, the bug had hit me with that. So I went, a year later, went to Mali. My, it was my dream to go to Timbuktu, 
went to the ancient city of Timbuktu, shot a documentary there, shot a documentary about the Dogon, same problem, put it out on YouTube. And then fortunately for me, I just kept doing those and doing those. And um, it sort of created this second career for me as a kind of, I guess, historian, mm-hmm. even though I don't consider myself that, but a historian, documentarian sort of career. So in the end, like the opportunities have been different. I ended up going and I've lectured in universities in the States. I've gone on to, you know, do some different things that I wouldn't ordinarily do, you know, but the bugs come back though for directing. So I started a couple of years ago, I started making some shorts, making some shorts. I'm going out to shoot another short. Um, I was actually in Canada, actually, a couple of weeks ago. I went to working with a producer out there. There's a feature film I have, a political thriller set in a fictional West African country. It's called <laughs> Kudeta. You know, it's about okay. military coups in the 1980s. So there's a producer who we just signed a deal to develop and get it done. I have numerous other scripts that I'm working with various other producers to try and get made. But this time around, I want to get them made properly. So which do you enjoy more, like seeing something fictional that you've created be brought forth on screen or a historical sense and like teaching the people what they should know of what's real? Oh, the latter for sure. Okay. But, but, but I, think, I think the former only becomes important from the point of view of economics. You got earn mm. and survive. I just came back from Egypt. I just did a documentary across Egypt from the north to the south that was funded by a, another company. But they, they, it only happened. They only funded it because they saw the stuff that I was doing. And I pitched it to them. They're like, yeah, we'll, we'll fund it. Now, they didn't give it to me. They didn't give me millions to do it, you know, but it was still enough to get it done. That ultimately is what I love to do. The part of me that I'm wrestling with at the moment is what I truly got into this business for was to make uh, non was to make fiction, scripted stuff, stuff with actors, working with actors, you know, not every day. But I, I would love to have a career where I'm able to go between the two of them. And even with my films, like the stuff that I the, the film Mona is like it's a history lesson, essentially. Mm-hmm. There's this thing where you can put the, the candy in the medicine, essentially. Absolutely. Or the medicine in the candy, rather. So the candy would be the feature Abs- film, but the medicine, like what you need, the writer the, of, a, the of a straight can actually yeah. put that in there. So Yeah, yeah. Even, even you look at my, my first ever play, it's called Another Biafra. Essentially, it was about the ongoing uh, oil crisis in the Niger Delta, which in the region of Nigeria where Shell and all these companies are complicit in not only this destruction of the environment, but also in the way that they've, they've allowed... Um, corruption to run rampant in the country you know so mm. i'm really exposing a lot of stuff i made it like a comedy but it was it was some it's some deep stuff right. like you re, you know i don't know if the reviews are still online if you can still find it but like people were just like the the, the people that were doing re- reviews are like this is like so different like if they had the money if they had a budget like can you imagine where this this play will probably be at the national theater or something that has always been my thing. I just made a short couple of years ago um, about a car breaking down on the side of the road as people are going north to try and uh, go through the Sahara and then migrate to Europe. You know, it's about a car breaking down on the side of the road and what, what a woman does. She has to come to terms with what she's about to do. The short I'm going to shoot in a couple, I'm going to Nigeria in April. We're shooting a short film about um, the, uh, so it's set in 1928. And essentially it's about how Christianity came and divided families. It's about a man who doesn't want his son to go to school because it's run by the missionaries, but his son wants to be educated and be modern, you know? So it's, it's really just about the destruction of African civilization, essentially, that, that short. So I'm still, this is still what I'm interested in. 
But I think with documentaries, especially the way I tell my documentaries, there's a, there's a limit to my documentaries are more so like a travel series. So if you watch my Egypt one, if you watch my uh, voodoo one, my Mali one, you know, it's me going, you're going to these places through my eyes. That's mm-hmm. essentially what it is. And then I give you a little bit of historical which, background. Which, which is the one where like you're with a guide and you go down this ladder. It's basically a cave where people stored like water and all different types of things. Which one was oh, that? Oh yeah, so that's, yeah, so that's the one about the Dahomey kingdom. So that yeah, one. so that's that, one of the that, first I was like, ones. bro, like, yeah. why are you going down the ladder, bro? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, are you sure that same? But I was like, and I, it looked kind of tight because you're, you're, you're pretty big. Hench, yeah, I guess, you is got the word to. that might maybe use. So I was like, bro, that's pretty small. But hey, yeah, you got are, to though. It's, it's, got it's, to. It's, it's, it's those types of things you do in like, travel documentaries where you got to go with the people down the cave and in the thing and yeah. over the thing. It's like, yeah. wow, he's really going. So you got to meet the king and stuff and all that. So that's exactly that's, that's cool. And, 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 you know, the, the experience of doing that, it also satisfies me in a different way. Growing up, I loved Indiana, the Indiana Jones character. Oh. He's this guy who was, uh, you know, he's an archeologist. He traveled and did all this crazy stuff, but he was a teacher and that was similar to me. So you know, even just when I tell you the stories attached with making these documentaries, like it's just like once in a lifetime experience. I never forget. I'm going to Mali. We were going to Timbuktu and because of the places under control by it was under control by Islamists and now the French army, at least it was then. Mm. So we couldn't go there the usual route like people used to do 20 years ago. We had to go in a truck with a bunch of Malian people, you know, and me, I've got these locks. So I stand out like, you know, <laughs> You know, and and we we went in this truck, and the driver is navigating. There's no road, no signs, nothing. He's navigating using the sky, God knows what, the landmark. You know, even that experience, even and then and then we get to Timbuktu, this ancient city, which is a a thousand years worth of history. This the city's got, mm-hmm. and you see the mix and culture, and you see the hospitality. People just everybody's inviting us over to come and eat. And I saw this. University of San Corre in Mali was essentially what they modeled the University of Salamanca, which eventually modeled the University of Oxford. Mm-hmm. You know, so you, you're, you're going to these places, which are essentially the birth of a lot of the Western things that we aspire to. And you're just like, wow, these are the people that had books that taught us about all this and that. This is where this is the land where, you know, the gold from this land was sent to uh, Britain in the 1066. And this was the gold they used to make the coin. I mean, it's, it's, it's fascinating stuff. And then the day I leave, they blow up the airport, you know, wow. like it's, 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 so you're just there. You're, 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 you're right there, you know, um, you know, going, but I made a documentary uh, about this individual in Nigeria, a guy called, he just ran for president. And I went for, I, I traveled across Nigeria by road, which is something you just don't do. You just don't do it. Mm. But I traveled right across Nigeria by road and just seen, and you know, all these, the NSARS thing was about to, a few months before the NSARS thing, I don't know if you know the NSARS thing, mm-hmm. the the protest about police brutality, yeah. and the SARS the SARS cops st- stopped us. And you know, if you know people again, people with locks like me in Nigeria, mm. like they don't like us, you know. So I got stopped by this NSARS guy, and you know, it could have gone left, but instead, the guy found out what I was doing, and he started showing me videos about people that he's rescued and how the government's doing this. And I, 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 I get, I interview him. We don't end up using it, but you pick up so many things. You learn so much about people and then about yourself when you make these documentaries. So in a way it's also fascinating. You know, mm-hmm. I just came back from Egypt shooting this documentary and just going from, from North to South, 
I'm in Nubia for the first time. I'm in black. The, the remnants of the ancient Egyptians are in Nubia in the south of Egypt. And you're seeing them and they're looking at me and they're, they're like, hey, you look like Akhenaten, you know, uh, from the 18th dynasty. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You look like this person. And it's just, they're calling me Ramses as I'm walking through a tomb and all these white tourists are looking and like, he does look kind of like Ramses, you know? <laughs> you know, these are, these, are, these are moments that you just can't, you know, and, and this is why I always stress travel. If you're black, black people in particular, like we, we've got to travel to places other than Miami and whatever, you know, we've got to travel to places where we can see where our identity is formed from so that we understand what we did in the past and not try and do, you know, essentially mimic what our enemies have done in a sense, not enemies in the sense of the people who tried to rid us away from that past uh, legacy. Is the premise of the Egyptian documentary like studying contemporary or the, the, the legacy of ancient Egypt and contemporary Egypt? Or is it studying ancient Egypt outright and just like going through the history of that? Going through the history. So the documentary is called Kemet. K-M-T. Oh, okay. okay. Well, <laughs> yeah, you already know where I'm going. <laughs> that kind of explains. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, know, you know, so, so, so it really went. And, and really that in itself is not, you know, but it, it might seem like a very, uh, uh, I suppose to the traditional Egyptologist, if you will, that it's funny, even in the documentary, there's this moment where I'm with this black tall guy, darker than me in Nubia. And he's telling, and I'm like, Ramses, he looks African to me. It's like, oh no, they're not quite African. They're, they're like a special race. It's like, this is a bullshit, <laughs> you know? So, 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 so you can see, so you, you, you're, you're looking at how this thing is, you know, and then, and then what we do is, cause I, I'm doing this documentary with a guy called uh, Obadile Kambon, who's with the Institute of African Studies uh, in is Ghana. Is he in Ghana? In Ghana, yeah. I, Do you know, have you seen the video of his dad? In yeah, all, like uh, C-SPAN. You, you see, his, yeah. his, his father is a contemporary of like the John Henry Clarks, Joseph mm-hmm. Benyokin. That's that's his era. Yeah, they went. Um, but, he was, he was, I was like, OK, bro. Damn, yeah, that's 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 hard to hear. But I hear you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, ultimately, and, and, and even Dr. Cambon, his son, mm-hmm. Obadile, he, he, he he's evolved that thought a, lo- a little bit, which is that we we all have this uh, imaginary white person in inside of us that we're all born with it. And it is our job during the course of our lives to rid ourselves of that imaginary white person. So every single person is born with it. Mm -hmm. And most of us don't realize it. But once you realize it, it is your job to remove that person from you. And it's it's more of a mental thing, not a physical thing. It's more of a mental way of looking at life. So even with this documentary, you know, we're we're, we're going and seeing what the people wrote themselves. You know, because he reads uh, Medunetra, which is the language, what they call the hieroglyphs. He reads the language. Um, he can speak it to an extent. And so we're reading what they said. And what I do separately is I make the links between uh, what the Greeks, who were the earlier people to come there, what they wrote about it, mm. and then versus what the so quote unquote Aryan model says about it. In other words, the the model which of history that started to change after the transatlantic slavery began. So the 1700s onwards, when history started to change, when Napoleon shows up in uh, uh, in 1798 and sees the Sphinx and sees that these people are black and his uh, uh, closest confidant is writing about these people who we've enslaved. These are the people who we own all this, all this culture to and they shoot the noses off of the Sphinx. That's when history starts to change towards this racist model. Mm. Otherwise, throughout history, everybody knows what these people were. 2012, they did this DNA analysis of the mummies of Tutankhamun, Amenhotep IV, and, and Ramses, Ramses the Great, Ramses the Second. And you can see very clearly that their DNA relates to people. The majority of the DNA, with the exception of Ramses, 
relates to people in West Africa and East Africa and Southern Africa. I think Ramses is the only one who's got any kind of Northeastern, Af- when I say Northeastern, so quote unquote, Middle East slash modern day Egypt. Present day, he has like, yeah, yeah he, he has like 2% from that part of the world, but the rest of them are all essentially 100% black, pretty much. <laughs> okay, this now this is the thing that's always confused me about how contemporary Egypt, and this is totally off base, but as I said, there's no rules. This is the one thing that's <laughs> always confused me about this. Okay, contemporary Egyptologists make the assertion that ancients essentially are direct progenitors of the people who live there now. And in, in some cases, you could make the argument. I'm sure you could. Like I look at someone like El Neni, and I think if you go back in his history, there's African people there. However, oh, yeah. What's, yeah. what's always confused me is if these pharaohs and guys are indeed your grand, your great-grandfather's grandmothers. Why are you digging them up? It's yeah. never made sense to me. If you're related to them on some visceral level, like these are our direct ancestors and they are us, you wouldn't disrespect their memory or legacy by digging them up, putting them in boxes, letting people mm. come see. You would respect the traditions of your forefathers, right? But, yeah. but because there is that gap and there's been conquest, invasion, colonization, there's no real connection to the people who live there. The same way that I'm sitting in North Carolina, I don't really have a connection to the people who lived here 5,000 years ago. Mm. Now, 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 I wouldn't dig up the people who lived here 5,000 years ago because there's something in me that says that's wrong. Yeah. But to make money, they do it. So that how, how they kind of turn it to like, oh, they weren't really black. They're more like us. If, but, if that were true, you are treating your grandfathers fucked up, bro. Yeah, I mean, but let me say this, though. You know, a lot, a lot of the mis- misunderstanding about what's going on in Egypt is not really formed by the Arab invaders. It's mm. the Europeans who came to study. You got to understand that. Yeah. You see, the the so 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 in a nutshell, uh, Egypt when it declined, Egypt was essentially the people in the north, the blacks in the north ruled Upper and Lower Egypt, so Nubia, Kush rather, and then Northern Egypt, and they ruled it for essentially ten thousand years. And at the t- tail end, the people in the south took over. Now that's when, now they were foreigners in the sense that they went from the North, but they were still black people with a mm-hmm. similar culture and they took over. When they left, the, the Greeks eventually came in. The Greeks, when they died out or not died out, when they lost, they lost to the, uh, to the Romans. Romans eventually were defeated by the Arabs. Arabs eventually got taken over by, partly by Turks. And then the British came in and colonized. Now, when you go to Egypt, Egypt, the Egyptians, local Egyptians know the truth. This when I'm always when I'm saying people call me Ramses, it's not the dark skinned Egyptians that are saying that. It's the Arabs that are there. They recognize it. You see, all they did when they first came is they went and robbed the graves. So they took, so they opened the graves and took the gold. They weren't opening graves like even in Islam. It's not a thing to go and uh, dig up dead bodies. It's not a thing. But the Europeans who were fascinated by this culture of under, of of what Egypt was able to do. Mm. So desperate to try and study it. So desperate to try and also understand how somebody like Herodotus can write down that these people were black. And it's funny because these same Egyptologists, European Egyptologists, are discrediting Herodotus. Like they've they've written tons and tons of books over the years. It's a man who lived 2000 years ago. Granted, Mm. he exaggerated a lot of the stuff that he said, (laughs) but they go and they're discrediting a man who physically came to this place. Mm. Because it does, it's not in line with their philosophy and their way of thinking that these N words are the ones who created a society. <laughs> well, it's right? because is it because Western civilization, if you trace the roots, they go from basically they start in Greece. They go from Greece to Rome, then the Enlightenment, 
modernity, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Like that's the that's the track. Greece, yeah. Rome, Enlightenment, modernity. Yeah. But if you go back to the Greeks and you ask, where did you guys learn? They Let's went to you. Egypt. So, so now you. you have to connect what, that what, piece. Plato, Plato, who is the, the father of philosophy, would say that our language is a language of pigs. Like we have no education. We have no mm. educational system. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a saying, um, if I was to have a book of a thousand pages, I wouldn't be able to write down the names of Greeks who went to study in Egypt. But if you even go back just to the foundation of uh, Greek society in the first place, before Egypt, you go to a place called Crete, the Minoan Crete civilization, which if you read a book called Black Athena, written by a white man, by the way, Martin Bernal, he's talking about essentially this African society that goes into influence in the Mediterranean and forms this culture. But that's not new. You go to Crete. I was in Crete a few years ago. They had just brought out a bunch of stuff that they'd found from the Minoan Crete civilization, all black figures. But you can't take pictures, by the way. You know, so so this is the, this is these this is this is this is essentially what the truth is, and there are a few mm. scholars that would talk about it. For one, it's 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 another form of reparations in the sense that all this stuff that you looted, you got to send back. But then there's another form of reparations, which is uh, you now have to rewrite all these books. You now have to re-educate all the people. They'll do it in small ways, and in England recently, over the last few years, there's been this like uh, you know this guilt that they have that all of a sudden they're having to write down about when the Romans invaded in uh, the first century AD, there were, they were black soldiers that came. There were black soldiers that came, not just black soldiers, black rulers. There's Septimus Severus. Even talking about the city of London, they've had to go and try and explain. Essentially, the, city, the walls around the city of London were built by an African ruler of Rome, an African emperor. So in terms of race, they're having to dissolve that Christianized version of Rome, that Rome was this racist white place that dominated people and it was so superior. No, they actually took their influences from everywhere else. So they're starting to change in little ways, but Egypt is the gold mine. Because you see, even when we talk about history, there's African history and then there's Egyptology. So it's a, it's still they're still trying to divorce Egypt from Africa. Egypt has always been in Africa. I went along the Nile. The Nile starts in your father's place, Uganda. Yes, it, it, one of the one of its one of its sources in, is in your father's place, and it goes all the way up to the Mediterranean Sea. Now it goes through Africa and gets to the end of Africa. It doesn't go to it doesn't go from Africa to Egypt. It goes through Africa, and with, <laughs> with all due respect. Where you. does Africa start? You take away the Suez Canal that separates um, Africa from Asia, really. They call it the Middle East, but it's, it's a misnomer. It's a Middle East of, of what, you know? Like, it's, 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 <laughs> you take away the Suez Canal. Essentially, Africa and the Middle East is one place. Right. Go to a place, just cross over the, uh, cross over the Red Sea and go, into, go, from, um, go from Tanzania into, uh, uh, what do you call it? Go from Tanzania to the Arabia? Arabian Peninsula. In the mm. south, in places like Oman, one of the languages they speak is Kiswahili, right? Swahili, mm-hmm. the language of Swahili. I mean, you guys are Ugandan. It's funny. Swahili skipped over you guys. Like, it's, it's weird. Like, <laughs> it's skipped over Uganda for some reason. But Swahili that's spoken along that East African, West, East African coastline is also spoken on the other side because people keep moving across. Uh, in terms of, I mean, of course, even with Swahili, why Swahili is spoken on one side or the other also has to do with a certain form of... Uh, enslavement to an extent uh-huh. but, but, mm-hmm. but but the point we're making is these people are all connected right. these people are all connected by geography and i think the minute you say to yourself that there are africans in nubia but there are no africans in what would be egypt today and by the way nubia is south of egypt then what you're basically saying is at some point this superior race of people 
put some special walls to stop anybody from coming in. So now, you know, the association with Egypt is that Egypt was multicultural, as multicultural as, say, England would be, where there's every sort of nationality there. Okay, but what were the founding nationalities that were there? And that's the part that they never want to go into detail. And I think one thing that's very important when you study the subject is you go to the, uh, you must have heard about the uh, UNESCO, excuse me, UNESCO conference of 1974. The subject was the peopling of ancient Egypt. It's the first time uh, UNESCO held a conference about Egypt and brought Africans. So they, brought, they made a mistake and brought Sheikh Anta Diop of Senegal <laughs> and Theophile Benga oh of uh, mm-hmm. Congo. And Theophile Benga, if you know him, he's a linguist. So he breaks down the languages of Africa, connects it to Greek, etc. Whereas uh, Sheikh Anta Diop is more of a scientist. So he breaks down DNA. He also does language as well. Um, and he makes these connections and the minutes for that meeting really should have gone. They should have really taken this, the findings from that because no one else was able to argue. It's incredible that 50 years later, they've not said, okay, you know what? Let's use, let's use that and go and change history books. Mm. Instead, they were like, let's just bury the outcomes of this, of this, uh, the, of, of this conference. And it's funny because like he wanted to go, this is when the DNA testing began. Sheikh Antidiop is renowned for creating this form of being able to uh, test the the charred remains of, of people. And I think they eventually went and used it for, you know, when people when somebody dies in a fire, they use the same test to find out who they were through their DNA. He did mm. the same thing for the mummies, but they refused to give him permission. Now, ironically, the gatekeeper to Egypt, Egypt itself, uh, Egypt's past, is a man called Zawi Hawass. He was alive back then. He's still alive today. You watch every documentary on Discovery Channel, Zawi Hawass is being interviewed. He's a North, he's an Egyptian uh, in the sense that he's an Egyptian that's connected to because because Egypt, like the north of Egypt, is really Turks, Persian people mixed with uh, people who are remnants of Greeks. So they they they're so far disconnected from Africa than people in the south. So El Neni and the rest of them will have some African blood to an extent, even Salah to an extent, maybe just a little bit. But the the bulk of them is from the Persian invasion of Egypt, the Persian and then the Arab invasion. If you go back uh, 50 or 60 years, Egypt's first heads of state, uh, Gamal Abdel Nasser, for example, Anwar Sadat. Sadat, Sadat, Anwar Sadat, you know, so, so, so these are people who, who, who understood the connection they had with the past. But the locals, make no mistake, go around the tombs and the, and the... They know. It's always a tour guide that will say this, and that's why I don't use tour guides. It's always a tour guide that will tell you some crap. But locals that live, <laughs> live and work around there, the Bedouins, they always like this. It's obvious. It's just mm. obvious. You can't see. You can't see a man with locks painted with locks. <laughs> you can't see a dark-skinned woman, you know, like a chest. Mm. Or you you can't see these figures. And then you're going to tell me that these people are some special race. Thankfully, th- th- thankfully for the yeah. Egyptians, like they were master graffiti artists, and they wrote yeah. on everything. Every and they and and it's, it's very obvious when they draw like this is what people from Nubia look like this is what we yeah. look like this is what I guess Greek people look like it's very obvious if you look at the paintings what what they were and what they thought of themselves now now this is something that I think is dastardly I wonder if they when I say they I mean like Europeans this is just a Daniel conspiracy theory mm-hmm. are they tampering with these pictures like are they putting some lightning yeah. are, are they bleaching the pictures. That's what yeah, I want to know. That, 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 that's, an, that's, an, that's a very interesting <laughs> point. That's a very interesting, because a, a, lot, a lot of people have talked about this before. Mm. And um, I have some images, actually. I went in 2016 
Um, and I went to uh, Karnak Temple. Karnak Temple is a big temple in uh, Luxor, the one where uh, it was built by Ramses and it was built. It's It's got this famous thing that on Is that Christmas the one they Day, moved? Is that the one they moved? Like they made like the dam uh, and then they had to move oh, the thing? Oh, okay. No, no, no. That, that's further south. You're thinking about Abu okay. Simbel. Abu Simbel, okay. yeah. So so they've moved a few of them. There's also a Philae mm-hmm. temple they've moved, but Karnak's still, still where it was. Okay. It's the one where on the winter solstice on Christmas, around Christmas Day, it's the one where the, the sunlight, uh, the, when the sun rises, you can see it on the Holy of Holies. So it's like essentially what creates the what we call Christmas today. That was the reason why. Anyway, long story short, uh, I was at Karnak Temple and I have some images. I go off, I go off dig them out, maybe post them actually, um, of, um, you know, because again, Egypt is under constant, it's such a touristy place, but it's such yeah. a place for research. And Europeans have a stronghold over that place, such a stronghold. So every every tomb that you go to, you might be walking around doing your sightseeing, and there's some Austrian lady just like you, with a with a you know with a with a with a long ruler measuring this and that, and she's got some locals doing you know putting packing some stuff up, putting it in a box. But I went oh, into wow. this room once where I saw them literally painting over the. Uh, 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 the figures and it seemed like they were lighting them. Now, I don't know. I, I don't know how true mm-hmm. this is. It might be that mm-hmm. this is some form of preservation, but mm-hmm. I think ultimately they've got so much control over the, the history and the information of that place. And the, th- and the truth is when they keep digging, I think there's a, there's a man called Godfrey Higgins. He was, a, he wrote in the 1700s and he wrote a, a, a volume, uh, uh, about four volumes of a book called Anacalypsis. Of course, 1700s this is the height of transatlantic slave trade. And he, he was basically saying that, look, um, the, the, the further you dig into history, the blacker it gets. That's what he's, he's, he's famous. So, so it doesn't really matter what they do. They ultimately know that you're never going to be able to hide from this. And it, it's no, it's no, there's no surprise that, you know, there's this like revisionist history where people are starting to go back. It's really not because we've progressed or done anything differently. It's just because of nature. As time goes by, there's only so much you can hide. There's only so much you can hide. And eventually you have to go back. You have to go back and start correcting things, and and it ultimately will. And I think documentaries like my own and the Hidden Colors series—I don't know if you have ever seen those. Those, uh, are the, mm-hmm. you know, like, mm. but but just in in, in terms, <laughs> yeah, 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 I say no more. But but just in terms of in in, in terms of them being able to tickle your 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 thought, intellectual your thought process, curiosity, like, yeah, yeah, exactly. Like because even mine, like people try and discredit me all the time, and what I try not to do is put in like sometimes i'll make my own conclusions but ultimately what i do is i go to the historians that i write i read about who i believe in ultimately what we're doing essentially is propaganda everything's propaganda to an extent and what i do is i i I quote them either verbatim or i summarize what they're saying and i reference them in in at the end of every documentary so i'm not Mm -hmm. trying to form an opinion i'm going by the the people that i believe and also using common sense this is the other thing is common sense what stops someone following the Nile downriver from Uganda, from Tanzania and going to Egypt? How can you, that it's just, it's, it's common sense. It's just common sense, you know? And what did they, what did they say about they say, themselves? They said, we, we came from the beginning of the Nile where God happy dwells. Happy is the name of the river. So they're telling you where they came from, that our culture starts there. There's a reason why the river Thames flows through the city of London. It's not because, People came, people were just living here and the river appeared. They moved, they followed the river from as far as they could and they eventually came to London. There's a reason why the Niger River 
is uh, flows from Guinea and goes all the way to 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 Nigeria, and you have all these different civilizations across it because mm. civilizations are formed along rivers. You don't have a, a civilization and the river appears. That's not how it works. <laughs> the yeah. river is there first, and you keep going and going mm-hmm. and going because you need that nourishment from the river. Go and yeah. say that that Egypt is some enigma along this river that starts in the center <laughs> of Africa. It's just it's bizarre, man. I'm cognizant of the clock, and we do have a quick fire round, Anur. Okay, so we, we cool. can start that one now. The last good documentary you watched, you can't say one of your own. South of the border, I think. What's that about? Uh, Oliver Stone goes to South America. It's about 2009. I'm sure I've seen one before that. I mean, after that, but but that's the one I can remember. Right. South of the border. Uh, so it's Oliver Stone, the filmmaker who made JFK, made Salvador. So he goes and he's he's making essentially a documentary about how the leadership of South America is essentially, or Latin America is essentially now indigenous for the first time. Uh, whereas for many years it was the European, hmm. the descendants of Europeans who had ruled. Uh, so from about 2009, 2008 onwards, you had Hugo Chavez, Rafael Correa, you know, all these different uh, uh, people who were uh, uh, Dilma Rousseff in Brazil and so on. Hmm. So for the first time, they were being ruled by people who looked essentially like the natives. Interesting. So very good documentary. If you could be an animal for a day, which one would you pick Ooh, and why? Think a bird. Some sort of bird. What, what kind of birds? A bird that can Eagle? fly. A, a bird. I'm not very good with birds, but a bird that can fly long distances and high altitudes. I just love to see everything that's going on around, you know, the world, and you know, from 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 a point of view where nothing can happen to me. Of course, I don't. Hopefully, I don't get taken by a plane. But taken <laughs> out by a plane. Do you know, but I, yeah, yeah. That I saw this. I saw this recently. There was like uh, in Africa, they put. Um, a tracker on an eagle and the eagle mm. went i think from botswana to egypt to europe mm. and turned back around and like it's like i guess the trail or the trek of an eagle it's just like it's very intricate and interesting in many ways and the way they fly they fly near water so they can drink like they're it's, it's very as, as we interesting were saying, like it makes sense um if, if, if i can okay. find it i'll send it to you i might have the countries wrong but it's it's the same principle um your favorite okay. skill move yeah. It's not so much of a skill, but again, being a right back, my favorite thing in the world was to take the ball away from somebody as they think they're about to score. Uh, we had a coach, <laughs> and it just shows you why I was never, be, I never became pro. Our coach used to say, "If you miss the ball, don't miss the leg." So, oh wow, there's nothing like taking somebody out. Oh, obviously, it's 20 years ago. You can't do that. You can't think like that. You can't coach like that now. But it was just, it's just make sure you take them out. Make sure you take them mm. out, and they just never, never think that they've gotten past you. So it's not so much a skill; it's just taking the ball off someone. Do you know what? I forgot you were a defender, so you were going to yeah. answer that question in a different way. It's like skill moves. I'm, just, I'm yeah. going two feet. What are you talking about? Yeah. Um, favorite TV show of all time currently? Oof. If you can narrow it to one, if you can't, then you know what? What? What do you? Uh, the, wire. The, the wire. The The wire, wire. is what probably right. what I've seen a hundred times. Yeah. Yeah. Probably. Um. All right, Onura. I'm sorry. Uh, your your house is on fire. You don't have to grab children or the wifey because I'm sure that they will get out by themselves. But you can only grab three things before everything is consumed. What do you grab? My God, you gotta prepare people for questions like this. <laughs> Jesus Christ! It's it's better on the spot, bro. Wow. Um, okay, so let's go with passport because I don't want to spend too long. So passport. So wife and kids are out. Good. Um, <laughs> You know, um, my house is burning. Jesus Christ. 
Oh my god! Uh, there's a there's a there's a a, a book that my my oh, I've got a ton of books, man. But I could always buy them again. Oh lord, 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 lord! What do I take? Uh, I'd probably take my. I have some jewelry. I've collected so much jewelry over the years from different parts of Africa. Like I, I wouldn't even know where to start to start picking them up again. I'll probably take the box that they came in. Cool. So my box of jewelry, uh, like African beads and stuff, it's not mm. like jewels. Um, and I would probably take a pen and a pad. Interesting. Something. Yeah, a pen and a pad. Um, <laughs> number six, where's number six? The time football has made you the most happy. And this could be as a fan, as a player, whatever. These amazing questions. Sunday Olise's goal against Spain in Ooh. 1998 at the World Cup. I just, it's just like, okay. you know, and it's, no, 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 no. Sorry, sorry. I take that back. Rashidi <laughs> Yakini's first goal. Let me tell you, Rashidi Yakini's first goal in 1994 World Cup. I must say this to you. When he I saw it as a kid. the net and shakes the- When I saw it as a kid, I was emotional. Mm. And every time I still see it today, I w- I'm emotional. Because it's also about the man, what he went through in his life, especially in his latter life, why he was a player for the Super Eagles, how the press treat him disrespectfully even though he's the greatest striker to come out of africa at least at that point drug mm. is, is a different thing <laughs> drug ban eto a completely different thing where where yeah where too i mean where mm. i think i think where had a, two great seasons and became ballon d'or winner i don't really i don't really put <laughs> oh, him no, don't put, you know I'm, I'm, I'm not disrespecting him but like i'm just talking about as a striker like okay. like consistently over a, a decade and so and so and so drug well okay i'm, I'm with I, you, I did you. i did a thing though by the way top, top best africa footballers by the way i didn't and i i think i had uh I think I must have had Eto at number one, I think, or, or Pele or something. No, not Pele. I said, did you see what I said? Pele. Uh, no, no, I, I mean, it, it was a Freudian slip. But if we're talking African people. Yeah, thank you. He is number thank one. You. Speak. Yeah. I'm sorry. Speak. Yeah, absolutely. But go, go for it. Go for it. I have to go with Rashid Yakini's moment, 1994. Right. And this, this might be my favorite of the questions. The time football's made you most angry. You know, to me, it's always when... Somebody, a manager or somebody that I love is sacked. I, I must say this though. I, I, it might sound weird. Every time Mourinho is sacked, I hate football. Anytime like a, a, a coach I like is sacked, I hate football. There we go. Because it's, it's not so much that they were sacking Tuchel was, was, was tough, but it didn't, it's not, it didn't hurt me as much as seeing Mourinho leave Spurs, Mourinho leave United, and Mourinho leave Chelsea the second time. Oh, Noah, we are making a music festival. You, I'm giving you the power to resurrect. So anybody, I need headline acts for Friday, Saturday, and Sunday at Onura Fest. You say three, right? Three. Say Friday, three? Saturday, Sunday headliners. Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Okay. Oof. Okay. Now you scared me. No, no, that's that's pretty scary. <laughs> okay, I will go with this. I'll go. I'll go with um, Opener is a reggae artist from uh, Mali slash Ivory Coast. His name is Tiken Jafakuli. Uh, he's the opener. Uh, that's Friday. So Saturday, Saturday, I will go with Tumani Diabate. He's a Kora singer from Senegal. I'm oh, sorry, from Mali, excuse me. Kora is the ancient guitar. Kora uh, music for me for the last like five, 10 years has been my favorite music. Like this, yeah. that's just that's the music I listen to. So, Tumani Diabate. Uh, and then to close, see, I'm like one of these guys. I'm, I'm a, is he the fella or Bob Marley? For me, um, I lean in my mind, towards, I was thinking he's gonna pick Fela, but uh, I, I lean more. Be honest with you, I lean more towards Bob Marley. 
Do um, you know our mutual friend does not like Bob Marley? I wonder why. You see, Fela is like, he's like a national treasure to like Nigerians and Africans in general. Mm. Uh, but I think Bob Marley, in terms of the content, because you see, you got to look at Roots Reggae, Bob Marley, Culture, Burning Spear. Like they were actually teaching us about Africa. Whereas yeah. Fela was, 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 he's essentially complaining about, not complaining, I don't mean to dis- discredit him, but he was, his music was all about one country. And, you know, even though he was talking about the larger problems of Africa, you know, um, like people tend to like lean towards him um, if you're in Africa. And he's also like a new thing. He's like, a lot of people have just recently discovered him over the last decade. But Bob Marley, content wise and reggae culture in itself, if I want to do a documentary in Jamaica as well, like about maroon culture and how, Ooh. you know, like I think, I think, I think for me, Bob Marley, just reggae artists in general, I would have like, I would have um, Peter Tosh if I could oh. resurrect him. I, like it would be the original group with the Peter way, Tosh. Bob Marley in the way. Yeah, yeah and yeah. Peter Tosh does his bits and then Bob Marley comes on and they all do their thing together. And like, that's if, how if you I would listen do it. to Dembele 4 or Dembele yeah. 4, I guess. Oh, like oh. The, the, the political connotations of Marley's music are supremely underrated because. Brother, pe- the because, Exodus because, album. Because, because people, imp- they choose like, you know, Three Little Birds and they choose exactly. like all, all, all of these songs that like they sound good and they are sonically yeah. pleasing. But the political messages in some of the other albums, they rob Bob Marley of those just to make him happy high dude from Jamaica. It's like there were some real political messages in those work, in his work. Brother, the 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 Exodus album, mm. if you can't get motivated as an African person recognizing your culture from mm. natural mystic, you understand? Like listening to natural mystic, there's a natural mystic blowing through the air. Like you listen to what this man is referencing, the metaphors that he's using. To try and explain to you what these people are, what these people have done to us over time. It's surprising because even on that album, I think I've heard like a couple of Lennox Lewis walk to the ring with like natural mistake and like people don't play those that that side of Bob Marley. I think the most popular album Marley has is the Legend album, which is the curated one yeah. of all of the all of the songs that he's released. Yeah. And in that curation, it's easy to negate someone's political message and just make them seem just like some trite, dreaded high dude from Jamaica who doesn't have anything of consequence to, to really say. But it once like I remember these is back in the torrent days where you could basically download yeah. everybody's <laughs> discography and yeah. you would go on LimeWire. Like, I remember one day I sat yeah. down and like the speed of the Internet was really slow and I downloaded all of Bob Marley's music. I yeah. went maybe like some months and just listen to everything. And I was like, wow, like this is, it's not just like what you would hear in cool runnings or something. It's like, this is an actual, <laughs> this is like real life political. Th- I was like, wow, like he's deeper than I Absolutely. thought. Absolutely. So, he's, he's, he's very, very deep. Pick. And I think, I think, I think if we even, sorry to stop you, but, but if, if we no. could even, if we could even, I think the thing with Bob Marley is we have to also recognize that um, the time that he lived in, the music that was that was the, the, it was it was all about socially uplifting. You you gotta look. He dies in the early eighties, but the his the prominence of his career is around the same time as the Black Panther Party self defense. The time they're declining. It's the same mm. time that Fela has just come back from, you know, his his radicalized days in Oakland and California around the Black Panthers and people who eventually became part of the Black Panthers and eventually goes back to Africa and does the same sort of thing. So everything is happening at the same time. Those the mid seventies 
to late 70s. So everything that came out around that time that was pure, because even Peter Tosh, like, like that's why I said Peter Tosh has to perform as well. Like everything that came out around that time is almost the stuff that went into even James, James Brown. Mm. Like this is all the stuff that goes into influence the 1980s with hip hop. So Bob Marley, like the music that he, the time that he brought out the music, I think, in fact, I think the reason why his music was so successful is because he was speaking a message that resonated with not just Africa, but people that were suffering around the world. This is post Vietnam. That Exodus Exodus album, I think, was 1977. So this is this is post Vietnam. You see all the issues that are going on around the world. You see what the US is doing. This is the beginning of Iran Contra. So there's global suffering. Mm. So his music had to have resonated. And I think because we didn't live in that time period, we tend to look at it from the three little birds angle. Yeah. You know, and, and think everything is just like rosy and don't worry about a thing. You and know, you know and what? Really, Do you know what? We we say that, but I'm sure if I go back and I look like if, if I do my, you know, English major painstaking poetry through three little birds, I'm yeah. pretty sure there's hidden exactly. messages in there. As well, well, there you so, go. There you go. Exactly. The exactly. But, it's, a, it's a surface level. And we do that with right. everybody. We, we remove the teeth. European history tends to remove the teeth of all the greats. Mandela died a toothless man. This is a man who was essentially a terrorist, was going around with Nkoto Asizwe going and blowing stuff up. This is a this is the, the, the revolutionary leader that we wanted. But by the time he died, he was mm. toothless. Muhammad Ali died toothless. You understand? Like they, they take the teeth out of these people and, and make them seem and, like teddy bears. And, and, and people who were growing teeth are Dr. King. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Taken out and then the teeth removed that were growing. Exactly. And then and then, <laughs> so, and, then in, and then we look back in history, like we remember the toothless version. You understand? Mm-hmm. The, 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 I have good. a dream that all the da, 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 will sit at yeah. the table, the brother. It's like, bro, if you look at King 66, 67, 68, there's yeah. a reason he died then. Because they yeah. were like, no, 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 no. This can't run because he's too yeah. powerful. But yeah. Onura, we have reached the limit. I thank you for giving me way more time than even I asked for. This was a really fun discussion. We'll have to do it again sometime. Absolutely. The, the last, last quick fire question is, is there anything coming out that people should know about and or where can people find you? Okay, so you can find me on, uh, so we're on Instagram, AEA Films. We're on YouTube as well, AEA Films UK. Um, in terms of things that we've got kind of come out, we've got a documentary on Egypt called Kemet. It's a four part series, probably about Ooh. four hours, four hours in length, four episodes. Is that on reach. YouTube or? Uh, I don't know yet. Cause, cause uh. this one's, this one's been, <laughs> I'm trying to, I'm trying to, cause I'm trying okay. to build, cause I'd rather have control over what I'm putting out there, but I think mm. there's a way we have to try and make the money back. So gotcha. what yeah. I tend to do is I co-stream. So we stream it on YouTube, but it's also streaming on a platform called Quelly TV. So if you go and watch it there, I get more money. Um, whereas YouTube's not really, you know, you don't really get much, right, for, right. you know, so, so, so I'm hoping to drop it on YouTube because I've, I really, really believe in, the, in trying to put out this work for the purpose of us uh, using it. And I think over time, over time, the more people see it over time, eventually everybody, you know, the powers that be will be able, will come to me and be like, you know what, you've got something and we'll invest in you. So it's sort of a long game, but, yeah. The, the cost of the content is the cost in terms of time and expenses is just something which I, I can't keep doing with every single piece. So gotcha. uh, that's coming out. And then um, just look out for me. I've got a lot of things going on. Um, so also just uh, about to shoot a film called We Don't Use Money Here. Uh, it's a short film going to be shooting in, in, in Nigeria. And hopefully if I get this project off the ground with this producer, uh, look out for a film called Cool. Kudeta, 
in the next year, hopefully. Cool. All right. All the links to Underworld will be in the description, bro. I thank you again. And uh, yeah, thank you guys for listening. Peace, guys. Appreciate you. Thank you, brother. Sports Social Podcast Network.